because he, while mentioning other things, the primary focus and the main theme of his book is faith. And we got down to uh, verse 14 of chapter 2 last time. Uh, and here he says, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? What good is it to have a trust, a belief in God, if your works don't fit the things that God says to do? Works can be many things if you go through the Bible and see all the things that God says to do. Works is, encompasses quite a gamut of various things that we can do toward God, toward each other, uh, even toward the world in some cases. Uh, the Bible is an instruction book for human life throughout. And every word is there for a purpose, as we see in Timothy. So, to do the works of the Bible, the things, if you will, we can call it works, and maybe the Protestants have a narrow little view of what they would call works, uh, you know, sending a pie to the charity dinner or whatever it might be that they call works. But there's certainly a lot more to it than that, and it includes, the, for, for a different word, the things that God would have us do uh, in our lives, no matter what that might be. What good does it do to say we believe in God if we don't do what he says? Uh, Let's say you're on a baseball team and you have a coach and you believe in that coach. You think he's a good coach. But what good does it do if you don't play the game according to the coach's instructions? The same is true spiritually speaking. We have to follow God's instructions. We say we believe on him, but do we have works? Then he says, can faith save him? Can faith in and of itself save us? He goes on to explain this. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? We can say nice things to them. But unless we do something to help them, what good was it? The same is true of faith. We can say we have faith in God, but if we don't do the things that he says to do for each other, then what good is it? And he says that. Even so faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Or by itself, it's just a belief. It's just something that you say you have. But there's nothing to show it. There's no testimony of it. Yea, a man may say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I think this is pretty straightforward and plain, even though many Protestant churches teach that you don't need works. All you need to do is believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. So you don't have to do anything. And yet he's saying here, 
that it is very important and that the two go hand in hand and one without the other means nothing. What about when you have trials, troubles, and difficulties? Do we have the faith, the trust in God that he will work them out? Or do we panic? And when we have things that aren't going our way, perhaps, do we kind of give up on the things that we ought to be doing because we have a conflict in mind or a conflict of emotion? Then we have dead faith. Something that's dead doesn't do you much good. Something that's dead you usually bury <clears throat> because it isn't any good. It doesn't profit anymore. It has no life in it. <clears throat> so a belief in God has no life unless we are doing the things of God. So he shows here that faith and works go together. It's not one or the other. It's like uh, law or grace. It is not one or the other. It's both. If you keep the law of God, then he gives you grace, he gives you pardon, he gives you good favor and goodwill. If you don't keep his law, then you don't have his good favor and will. So they go hand in hand. Faith is evidenced by works. You say me, you believe me? Why don't you obey me, God says. You believe that there is one God. Well, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. What's the difference between Satan and us in that case? If we believe in God, we believe there is a God, then we're on the same level as the demons. They know that. They believe that. They agree with that. They don't like it, but they agree with it. There's only one God. So what separates us then from Satan and his demons? It's not belief in God. They know there's a God. The devils also believe and tremble. But will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? So the difference between us and Satan and his demons is that we do the things that God says to do. They do not. They rebel. They ignore. They distort and twist everything that God says. So the difference between them and us boils down to works. Who is willing to serve and obey God? So then we have to put ourselves to the test. Because as human beings, none of us completely serve and obey God. We do things that are easier for us, perhaps. Things that are more difficult for us, sometimes we don't get around to, or ignore, or forget about, or whatever. So we are in a struggle between being like God and being like Satan. And it's a daily struggle to become more and more every day like God and less like Satan and his demons, those who deny his word and will not obey, have set their mind not to obey. Now we have committed ourselves and set our minds to obey God, haven't we? That's why we're here struggling to serve and obey him. 
and we do struggle with it. But at least we've set our minds that we're going to go God's way instead of Satan's way. That's why we divest ourselves of friends in the world, uh, concourse with the world, other than that which is necessary basically to do business or to accomplish the things that God has set before us. Sometimes we have to be involved to one degree or another with those that are in the world. But there is a danger there, even though it is sometimes a necessity, and for most of us to work today and so on, it is a necessity to one degree or another. But with that comes the influence that they have, because they're not, they don't know God's Word, they don't know the true God, they aren't really trying to serve Him. They have a whole different and false set of doctrines and beliefs and circumstances in their lives than what we do. And evil influences good more than good influences evil. There's a testimony to that right in the Garden of Eden. You had the very best of the best. Christ was there. You had the very worst of the worst. Satan was there. Now, did God or Satan have more influence on Adam and Eve? I think that's very clear. <laughs> Satan had far more influence. They obeyed Satan immediately. And that is human nature. Human nature is to do the selfish, personal things and not do for others. So we have this struggle. It does not come easy. It takes growth. It takes effort. It takes strength and power that comes from God's Spirit to do things His way instead of the world's way. We're fighting an uphill battle. Herbert Armstrong used to say, any old fish can swim downstream, but it takes a pretty strong one to swim upstream. The whole current of the world is going contrary to God, and here we are going right into the teeth of that majority, trying to go the other direction. So it's easy to talk about faith and works, but it's really hard to accomplish it and to accomplish it to the degree that we need to. We'll all fall short, there's no doubt of that. We all have and all will, but we have to keep changing, growing, overcoming, and doing the works of God's Word. But will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And then he uses an example here in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? See how, see you how faith worked with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. Powerful example. Abraham said he believed in God. He believed he was the only true God. He had seen God make promises that God eventually kept, didn't keep them as fast as perhaps Abraham and Sarah wanted, but they were kept. And then the son grew up, and then God said, go sacrifice him. And yet Abraham had all these promises God made that he would do through his son Isaac. So he had faith and belief that God would keep the promises God had made, and yet at the same time, 
he had to obey something God told him to do. It must have been perplexing to some degree, but his faith in God was so strong that he said, okay, I'll do the works. I'll do what you tell me to do. So he took him out, tied him up, laid him on the altar, and was ready to sacrifice him. But faith combined with works convinced God that Abraham was truly seeking him. And that's how we have to convince God, too. Empty belief does us no good. But the things we do show it to God. Verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Not only had he been a subject not only had he been a child of God, but through all these things that God put Abraham through, he became a friend. I had always hoped at some point in life I could become a friend of God. That's a very difficult thing, it seems. Because to be truly friends, you have to think pretty much the same way. You have to agree on most issues. And how close a friend you are depends on how much you see eye to eye and how much you do not. So really good friends in a human lifetime are very hard to come by, aren't they? I've heard it said that if you have five good friends really good friends in the course of a lifetime, you're way ahead of the crowd. Maybe there's something to that, I don't know. We have lots of acquaintances, we have a lot of people we could call friends, family. But we're speaking here of the kind of friend that maybe David and Jonathan were, that they were so close. And that kind of friendship, the kind of friendship that Christ had with John the Apostle, deeper than he had with any of the other apostles because of John's personality and his obedience and the love that he had and various various other factors perhaps of John's personality he just fit very well with Christ's personality that would be nice to be said of us wouldn't it that there's a person that has a personality like Christ so there's close and there's closer and there's closest and it will vary through light. But here was a person who was truly called a friend of God. And that appellation is not made for many people in the Bible. Except that Christ told the apostles there in John 15 or 16, wherever it is, there in the Passover discourse or teaching he gave them, that he would not keep anything back, but he would call them friends. So he opened up friendship, not just to a few like Abraham, but he opened it up to all of us, that we could be his friends. And he's held nothing back from us. Everything that is about to happen is contained within the pages of this book, except maybe for a very few new things, he says, that he will create so we can't say, well, I already knew that. Uh, He'll throw a curve at us that way. But virtually everything that is about to happen is all laid out for us. 
And most of it now, I think we understand. He is showing us that kind of friendship, sharing with us what is to be. I find that really exciting when I stop to think about it. There are many, many people who don't even begin to grasp most of the Bible. I mean, in the church. For him to open those things to us is an offer of friendship. Are we ready to take him up on it? To be friends with Christ. Now, he is Lord and King, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and Ruler of Rulers, and every other title that you could give someone. And to be friends with those who are not on the same level or the same mind completely with you is fraught with danger. Because so many people look upon Jesus as just the friend and they forget about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and his instructions and then don't obey him. Uh, they begin to disrespect. So we have to be very careful, and he does, because he's offered us friendship. And we cannot take that lightly. So verse 24, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So justification, James says, comes through works. If, we're, if, if God is going to justify keeping you and me alive throughout all eternity, the justification is going to come through our works, the things that we do, our actions, our acts whether we are hearers or doers. That's what it will come down to. Verse 25, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works? Now here was a woman who was very, very sinful, even in the type of life that she led. And yet... She did something that was very important for God, for God's people, for those spies. And God was willing to justify her life, which changed. She didn't continue that. She became a part of Israel and is in Hebrews 11 as one of the faithful. But she believed in the God of Israel enough to risk her life to save the lives of the spies that God had sent out. So that's a pretty important work. Now, didn't Christ tell you and me that we should not seek to save our physical lives in order to save our spiritual lives? And that's one of the biggest tests of true Christianity, isn't it? Think about Rahab in that light instead of just as a harlot. She was willing to give her life for the lives of others. Now, there was some character there. There was someone who had values. Her way of life may have been not a good way of life, but that didn't mean that in spite of her sin, she didn't have some very, very good qualities 
And God was recognizing that when she was willing to give her life for the life of others. Isn't that the greatest sacrifice that has ever been made on earth? Was Christ giving his life for others? Didn't Christ tell us that we might have to give up our life for his sake if we are to save it eternally? And here's an example of a woman who did just that. Wow, what an example. I don't think I'd ever really thought of it in those terms before until reading this. That's why she's in the list of those faithful who will be in the first resurrection. She did what Christ later would do. She did what he asked us to do. There's some reason for justification. She was justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Full knowing that if she was caught, she would be killed. How many of us have sacrificed that much? You know, it's easy to judge. Some might say, why was Rahab included? Well, I think James is laying it out here for us. It doesn't matter what our sins have been, brethren. It's whether or not we begin to do the works of God. Nothing else matters. God tells us to confess and forsake our sins. If we change, if we grow, then they're all forgotten. They're all forgiven in the blood of Christ. So it doesn't matter. And Rahab's were forgiven just like anybody else's. I don't know why it is that we think that that, that one sin is worse than any of the others. Maybe the effects can be, but sexual sins, lying, cheating, stealing, they're all the same. They all have to carry the death penalty. So I would hate to be in the resurrection and show up self-righteous, and look down on Rahab. Maybe we, if we were there, better take the lowest seat and look up to Rahab. You know, it's a matter of mind and attitude. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So, if we don't have the works, faith means nothing. It's dead. Something that's dead can do nothing, can accomplish nothing. So it's not faith or works. It's not grace, law or grace. It's law and grace and faith and works. All are necessary. Let's go on to chapter 3. He says, My brethren, be not many masters or teachers. That doesn't mean that we're not to have those in those positions. It says, don't a lot of you be that. Knowing that we, including himself and the other teachers and ministers within the church at that time, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, to whom much is given, much is required. The judgment will be stricter on those who are doing the teaching than it will on those who are doing the listening. So, think about it pretty seriously before you take on the task of being a teacher in the church of God on spiritual things.
because the judgment is much more severe. So it's kind of a word of warning there. Timothy, or Paul says to Timothy that uh, to desire the office of an elder or bishop or minister or whatever is a good thing because those are good offices that need to be done. Uh, so, and God and Christ set those offices in the church very clearly in Ephesians 5 and many, many other scriptures. So they're a necessity. They're here for a reason. And yet he said, be careful about that because you're calling upon yourself a greater judgment if you teach. For in many things we offend all. Speaking of himself and those who were as well teachers, and of course to all of us as well. We do all offend, don't we? We all make mistakes, we all things say we shouldn't, and he uses the tongue here. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. The tongue is the most difficult part of the body to control. He says, if you can control that, you can control anything else. <laughs> That's the toughest one. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Horse is a pretty big animal. In comparison to you or me, you know, you might weigh 150, 200, 250 pounds, but a horse probably will weigh 1,000 to 1,400 pounds. And yet, as a smaller being, by far, than a horse, you can put a little piece of metal in their mouth and you can turn them either direction, you can stop them, you can cause them to go forward, and you can control the whole horse. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm whithersoever the governor desires. It's an amazing thing. Just a prop on a ship. Turn the wheel, the ship goes where you say, and it can weigh thousands of tons. And yet, someone as small as a man can control where that thing goes. Even in a fierce storm, you can control it to some degree. Even so, the tongue is a little member, just in comparison to a ship or a horse, us, it's a small part of the body. I don't know what, has anybody ever weighed their tongue? I don't know how much a tongue weighs. Not very big. Can't stick it out very far. But you can cause a lot of trouble a long, long way away. You might stick it out an inch or two or three, but you can cause trouble halfway around the world. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. You can boast, you can be vain, you can say all kinds of great things with the tongue. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles. Most of the problems that we face start with the tongue. Sometimes our tongues work before our brains are ever engaged. 
we should get them in gear before we ever pop the clutch on the tongue, but <clears throat> we don't. <clears throat> Whatever goes through our mind comes out the mouth, it seems, so often. You know, this isn't a modern problem only. James wrote about this about 2,000 years ago, and they were having the problem then. So he uses it as an example. Well, what's he talking about here? He's been talking about works. He's been talking about faith in God and works. And he uses the tongue here in this context to show that something even that small has to have the right works. It has to be used properly. It has to speak according to the word and the way of God. And if not, it kindles all kinds of terrible issues. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Not just a small little circle somewhere, but a world of iniquity. With our modern communication, somebody can say something in Moscow or Washington or Peru or wherever, and it can have effect all over the world. Oh, world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of eternal death. They don't just think of your tongue if you misuse it. They think of you. It's a small member of your body and yet it is such a significant part that what we say causes people to have a certain view of us. And so it defiles the whole body. You'd think if your tongue weighed a few ounces and you weighed a few hundred pounds, uh, it couldn't hurt the whole body, but that's what he says it does. And it can lead you to eternal death. For every kind of beasts and of birds and serpents and things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. You've got lion tamers, elephant trainers, people who train dolphins and sea lions and all kinds of things from the ocean. And they'll do whatever the trainer says, just like clockwork. So huge beasts we can train. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Well, James is kind of being real diplomatic here, isn't he? Being very careful how he puts things. He uh, doesn't want to offend anybody, of course. <laughs> I think he's just kind of laying it out there, isn't he? He's just telling us the way it is. There's not one of us that has been able to completely control our tongues. It reflects the mind. And the mind is deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. And no man can control the mind. And the tongue only speaks the things that go through the mind. But the mind is supposed to control it so that it only speaks good things. The mind is supposed to control itself. 
but we tend to speak without thinking, or at least not really thinking. I mean, you have to think to speak to some degree, I guess, but it seems sometimes that there's not much thinking going on as we speak. Certainly not the thinking of the things of God. Maybe we're thinking of hatred or bitterness or accusation or judgment of someone else, and therefore our tongues will wag. But if our mind were thinking on the level of the things of God, which you'll get to later on, we wouldn't say the things that we say about each other. That just shows that our thinking's not right. we got a problem. Let's face it. If we have a tongue and can speak, we have a problem. Every last one of us. Unruly evil, full of deadly poison. <coughs> you can kill people with your tongue. Whether it be in order to physically kill or whether it's character assassination and spiritually destroying someone. So easy to do. So hard not to do. Deadly poison can kill you plumb dead. That's what he says the tongue is. We need help. Okay? We need help in our minds. The God Spirit will be there to guide our minds and our thinking so that we do not say those things that we tend to say. Then he uses an example in verse 9. With the tongue... Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. We would not think of cursing God. We would not think of saying demeaning or bad or character assassination things about God. And yet we're quite willing to do it with people who are made in the image or similitude of God who are made with the purpose of becoming God someday, who are the very sons of God, and God has a great deal of family jealousy, the right kind of jealousy. He says he is a jealous God. Human beings are his children. All of them will be called, sooner or later in the plan of God, to salvation. Every last human being who's ever lived will be given that opportunity. And God is trying to do a good work in all human beings, ultimately. He's not calling all now, but he's called us. So we're on a different level already in some respects, spiritually, than the rest of the world. We have been called to be the sons of God in the first resurrection, to be the very bride of Christ. So we need to think very seriously when we lay our tongue on someone who is a candidate to be the bride of Christ. You know, men used to defend a woman's honor. Perhaps in these days, things have changed to the point it doesn't mean as much as it used to. But a woman was very upset if her man husband, her fiancé or her husband, would not defend her honor. If you said anything bad about a woman, uh, the man was expected to defend her with fists, words, knives, guns, or whatever it took. 
to defend her honor. In other words, he was very, very careful. That was his woman, and he wasn't going to let anybody say anything bad about her. Now, you know what? Christ is the same way. He's looking at you and me as potentially being his bride at the wedding supper very soon. And he does not take kindly when Satan, the demons, and those in this world persecute and talk down about us and kill us, which they intend to do someday. And he doesn't take it very kindly when we put down other parts of the bride, each other. He takes that very seriously. That's why James is writing this the way that he's writing it. We have to be very, very careful, brethren. I'm up here speaking these words, reading what James and Christ and the Father have to say to us about it. But what does it mean? It's just words. You can forget them very quickly. We can, I can stop right now or I can go on for a little while. And we can have a hymn and we can have a prayer. And we can go eat and go about our way and do nothing about it. Or we can take this very seriously as the Word of God because he says faith without works is dead and it won't do us any good and we'll go into eternal damnation for it. And he uses the tongue as an example of a deadly poison that is very unruly and that can lead to death because God is a jealous God. And you know what? He's going to marry 144,000 individuals, and he expects them to get along perfectly throughout all eternity. Never fight, never argue, never put each other down, never complain about each other, never accuse each other, never judge each other. That's the level he is going to put us on. So he is watching us very, very closely here in how we treat each other, how we go about our lives. We have to become friends. We have to become family. We have to get along. We have to serve him and love one another as Christ would have the members of his bride love one another. That's what this is all about. It's not so many words. We're being tested to see if we'll be the bride of Christ or not. How can we say that we bless God, love God, and Christ, and then run his bride down? How can we do that? He is going to defend her honor. He's going to do it. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. How can we say we love God 
and then treat man so shabbily. How can we do that? Very easily. <laughs> it's our nature. It's Satan's nature. It comes easy. But he says it should not be that way. All right, what are we going to do about it? How many times has James 3 been read to the church over the years? We're getting right down to the nitty-gritty, brethren. We're getting close to the end of this age. And the final selections for the Bride of Christ are going to be made in the next few years. I would like for every one of us here to be there. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. You can't be both ways. You can't bless God and curse man. You can't do it. You'll be unstable. You'll be double-minded. He's laying it out for us. We have to treat each other the same way we would treat the Father and the Son. Isn't that the way Christ put it? The way you treat others is the way I will judge you as having treated me. We need to help each other with this. You, you simply can't yield fresh and salt water out of the same mouth. Verse 13, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conduct his works with meekness of wisdom. We can look at people and say, Oh, there's a wise person or there's a fool or whatever. Who has knowledge? Well, the knowledge doesn't do us any good unless the conduct goes with it. The works with meekness of wisdom. If we're meek, if we're humble, how can we criticize our brethren? How can we do it? If you're meek and you're humble, you won't. That means we're not meek enough and humble enough, I guess. Because if you judge others better than yourselves, as Paul said we should do, esteem others better than ourselves, then there is a meekness and a humility that goes with that. And if you esteem somebody better than you, how can you then put them down and criticize them? Yeah, you can say, I believe in God. But if we're not humble and meek and working and controlling our tongue, it means nothing. Verse 14, but if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, bitterness, anger, envy, jealousy, the works of the flesh, in other words, glory not and lie not against the truth. Don't deceive yourself. If you have bitterness and anger and grudges and lack of forgiveness, don't deceive yourself. Your works are the works of the flesh, not of the Spirit. 
This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Satanic. Demonic. To have bitter envying and strife in your heart, and to speak good of God and bad of man, is demonic and devilish and earthy. It does not come from God. I think he makes this very plain. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Isn't that where we have our problems? Isn't that where they come from? Is the emotions of the flesh? But let's contrast it, verse 17, James says. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So if your mind is being guided by the Spirit of God, your thoughts will be pure. They will not be evil toward anyone else. And peaceable. Wanting to have peace rather than stirring up trouble. And gentle. Easy to be entreated. Wouldn't it be nice if all of us could be approached and someone could say to us, I think I see a problem. Perhaps you could change this. We're not that easy to be entreated usually. We don't like to be told we're wrong. That just goes against human nature. Full of mercy. Not quarter of a tank of it, but full of it. And good fruits. And not putting some above others and no hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Isn't that what Christ told us? Matthew 5, that we're to be peacemakers. We, by nature, are troublemakers. That's our nature, to be troublemakers, to cause confusion, frustration, doubt. Troublemaker is what we're born as. Our tongue is our biggest troublemaker we've got. But he said, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Don't make trouble, make peace. It's much harder to do. You know, we complain around here sometimes about the way things are. Well, what are we doing about it? Are we adding fuel to the fire by going around with that attitude? Or are we putting forth the effort to cause, to make peace instead of confusion, frustration, war, agitation, trouble, disharmony, and disunity? Do the things that come out of our mouth cause and create peace, or do they cause more trouble? Let's not deceive ourselves. Let's be honest about that. And let's do something about it, because God says, 
We can't have faith without works. It's dead faith and it will lead to eternal death. But those who make peace are producing the fruits of righteousness and they'll be part of the bride of Christ because they've learned to get along and make peace. James is saying an awful lot here. This is a very powerful book. That's why Martin Luther called it an epistle of straw. Worthless. No, it's not worthless. It goes to the very depths of Christianity. Or the heights of Christianity, perhaps, if you will, in the depths of world, of the world. Because it tells us the way it really is. That if we are to have faith in God, it has to be backed up by the fruit of righteousness, by the works of doing everything that God tells us to do. And he uses some very poignant, very powerful examples here for us. So that's plenty to think about for one day, so let's stop there.